0: The following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. Peace be with you all. You can grab your Bibles or return to your seat where your Bibles are. And if you don't have a Bible, please grab one of the ones next to you. That's our gift to you. You can keep that. We're going to continue our study of 1 Peter. So if you will... Turn there in your copy of God's Word to 1 Peter chapter 3. If you're not familiar with the Bible, 1 Peter is towards the back of the New Testament. There's a few few books from the end. The large numbers on the page there are chapter numbers, and the small numbers there are verses. We're going to be in chapter 3, beginning in verse 8, and we're actually going to read through chapter 4, verse 6. 1 Peter chapter 3 beginning in verse 8 Peter writes Finally all of you have unity of mind sympathy brotherly love a tender heart and a humble mind do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authority, and powers having been subjected to him. And since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. Let's pray. Father, this is your word, and we give thanks to you for it. There is much to be said in this lengthy passage, and we do not have the time to explore all of it. Many sermons and much ink spilled over the verses contained in our passage this morning. And we have but 45 minutes. So I pray, Lord, by your Spirit, that our hearts would be softened and open, ready and willing to receive the truth of the Word this morning. As it's spoken by your servant, may be received with gladness, humility, and faithfully obeyed. God, would you calm our hearts and minds the many distractions and thoughts of the past week and the upcoming week that we would now focus on your truth and by it be sanctified. Help us, Lord, we pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Peter's writing... This letter to a group of Christians that are dispersed throughout the territory of Asia Minor. This letter is meant to be circulated among those churches to encourage them in their trial and in their sufferings. Remember, Peter first calls them elect exiles. They're sojourners, pilgrims, wanderers in a foreign land. That is not their true home. So their identity is in Christ, not in this world. And yet they remain for a time in the flesh, in the world. And so they are, and we are as Christians, pilgrims and exiles. And Peter wants to instruct his readers then about what exilic life looks like in a world that is increasingly hostile to the gospel and increasingly hostile to them as Christians. These brothers and sisters are facing mounting pressure, increasing pressure to conform to the world around them, the culture, the society, their pagan idolatries, to participate in all sorts of slanderous and sinful activities that is normal and even passe to the rest of the world, but for Christians who desire to submit themselves to God's word and to the teachings of Christ is an abomination. And so the pressure is mounting against them. And this pressure comes in various forms, insults, ostracism, persecution, even death. But we know that humans are designed to flee suffering. There is nothing comfortable about suffering, whether physical or emotional, social. We are designed with the faculties To resist harm. To keep our social fabric as much together as we can. And when, for whatever reason, the fabric of our society, our relationships, our physical health and well-being are threatened because of what we believe, it's natural then for us to want to resist that, to remove it, to escape it. We're designed to recoil from all sorts of suffering. And so it seems natural for those who would face difficulty because of their faith to begin to wonder if it was all actually worth it. That is, I became a Christian and I'm trying to obey God's word, but it's costing me a lot. Maybe it's costing my job, my relationship with my family, my standing in society. And the pressures are mounting against me, and, and I don't know if I can keep doing this for much longer. Is this worth it? To be a Christian in a world whose hostility is, is more and more being pointed particularly at Christians and what they believe? To malign them and to persecute them and to come for them and their families and to destroy their lives? Is there a reward for Christians who take on that kind of suffering for their faith? You see, it's a natural question to ask when our feet are being held to the fire to wonder if it's not just easier to get up off the cross and go back to where we came from. No, but Paul will tell his readers that he's been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer he who lives, but Christ in him. And that's the call for all Christians. In fact, we know this. In verse 21 of chapter 2, Peter says the same thing. He says, For this, to this you've been called. That is, to suffering you've been called. Why? Because Christ also suffered. So Peter is now encouraging Christians faced with this issue about whether or not it's worth going forward and embracing persecution, suffering and trial, to look to Jesus as the one who set before them the path of righteousness and suffering for righteousness sake every wonder what the point of suffering for righteousness sake is peter says jesus does it jesus is the point look to christ he wants to encourage his readers in the first century today in the 21st century To lean into doing good, not away from. Don't pull back, but to lean into doing good. And the way we lean into doing good, despite the many adversarial work against us, is not to pull ourselves up from our own bootstraps or to white-knuckle it, but rather to look to Christ, to help us, to strengthen us, and to empower us, to move forward despite the onslaught of opposition from the culture. Wants to remind his readers that there is a reward that awaits Christians who do good and seek to follow Christ. He calls it in chapter one, our inheritance. And that inheritance is being kept for us in heaven, he says. It's imperishable, it's undefiled, and it is being kept and stored for us safely in heaven, and we will receive that inheritance on the final day when Christ visits, judges, and God will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. You laid down your life. You leaned in. You did not shrink back. And so the inheritance that awaits Christians is to entice us as we fo- focus our eyes and our fix our eyes on Jesus to lean in to what God has called us to. So I want to study our passage this morning and, and frame it in terms of blessing. Namely because Peter uses that word blessing and he draws on this idea of blessing as a source of, of incentive for Christians who are weary to press on. He draws from this idea here. Again, he says in verse 9, don't repay evil for evil or reviling for for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you are called, that you might obtain a blessing. And again, he says in verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. So as a, as a means to encourage and empower Christians, weary pilgrims in the world, facing all sorts of difficulties and trials, he says you can press forward looking to Jesus. Why? Because you will receive a blessing in so doing. In fact, it's larger than that. It's that Christians, both as a community, will bestow blessing on the world around them, and they receive blessing when they live out their faith before others. If you take notes, that would be the main idea this morning, that Christians both bestow blessing and receive blessing when they live out their faith before others. And Peter, at the heart of his letter, that's what he wants to do. Encourage Christians to faithfully live out the gospel, even if it costs them their reputation, even if it costs them their job, even if it costs them their life. You bestow a blessing and you receive a blessing when you live out your faith before others. And so I've got, how many here? Six, uh, I don't know, let's call them things. (laughs) of blessing. First in verses eight through nine, consider the way of blessing. The way of blessing. Peter says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. And do not repay evil for evil, reviling for, for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you might obtain a blessing. Notice right there in verse 8, he says, Finally, as if he's sort of ending a, a, a section in which over the last couple of weeks we saw really focused on this idea of Christian's submitting or in some sense subjecting themselves to the authorities above them. Christians submitting themselves to God, God-ordained governing authorities. Wives submitting themselves to God-ordained authority in the home of their husband, Even servants or slaves submitting themselves to the God-ordained authority in that particular institution. And he says, finally, all of you, Here's how you're to do this. So, these commands here are to possess a certain quality of character in the midst of our suffering while we subject ourselves to the context in which God has placed us. We embody the kind of character that Peter goes on to say Jesus had. So, when we subject ourselves to governments, even unjust governments and rulers, When we submit ourselves authority in our lives, even those who deal with us harshly, when we subject ourselves, wives, to our husbands and submit ourselves to his leadership, or husbands, when we give ourselves to the leaders in our lives, perhaps at work or otherwise, we do so with the kind of character that was embodied and really epitomized in Jesus himself. And so there's a particular way of life that Christians are called to, even if, that way of life ends up costing them dearly. In fact, we see here that Peter uses the word calling. He says, this is what you're called to do. For to this you are called, to bless and not revile, to live in a particular way that is contrary to what your natural self wants to do. So the Christian life is a calling to live in a particular way or in such a way as to actually be a blessing to others. That's where we see that Christians bestow blessing. You're living in a kind of way that is a blessing to those to whom you give yourself, to whom you lead, and with whom you serve. It's a call to live in such a way as to be a blessing to others. Your lifestyle and your way of living is a positive blessing to the world around you. And so the life of a Christian is to be marked by the quality of character that's described here. And I would think we could summarize this list here of, of unity, sympathy, brotherly love, tender heart, a humble mind, not repaying evil for evil or reviling, for reviling, but in blessing. We can kind of summarize this as a sincere and steady love of others. What are the two greatest commandments Jesus says? First, to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And these two commandments, all of the law summed up. So, Peter's already made it clear that our first love is to God, our allegiance is to Christ. But naturally, we should then turn to our fellow man, our brothers and sisters, both Christians and unchristians alike, and say, we love you, we serve you sincerely, humbly. And so the love of others needs to be a hallmark of the Christian character. And if it's not, then you're missing the mark, the basic fundamental mark of what it means to be a Christian. You may adhere to the right theology and believe the right things, but if you don't have genuine affection for the Lord and a genuine affection for other people, then you're askew from what Peter here says, this is what your conduct needs to look like. And So just look at some of these marks of Christian blessing, the kind of lifestyle that blesses those around them. First, he says, have unity of mind. And this is both within the church and without the church. That is, we, of course, as a body are to be unified. All the apostles make the case that disciples should be unified with one another. Jesus himself prays for that in John chapter 17, that they would be one. That is, his disciples would be one, even as he and the Father are one. Paul discusses this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that we are one, one body. Christ is our head. He says it again in Ephesians chapter 2, that we've been united together as one new man. Not Jew, nor Greek, nor slave, nor free, nor man, nor woman, but we are one in Christ. So there is a unity that we must possess as the church. And it doesn't mean that there won't be disagreements among us, small differences of opinion, and some matters of theology. What unity here of mind means, as the apostles were in the book of Acts, of one accord It means we move together with the same mission and orientation to love God and love others. We've all come from different contexts and neighborhoods and jobs and backgrounds, and so that's going to look specifically different in your life than it would, for instance, mine or anyone else's here. But here, members of Foundation, we're called to a particular mission in a particular city in a particular way. So we orient ourselves to live in unity with one another as we pursue the mission of God and the calling of God in our life. But even within the church, so without the church. That is, we live in unity with our neighbors. We can't do and fulfill the mission of God if those to whom we are to seek and fulfill that mission are our enemies. It doesn't mean we won't face opposition. and It doesn't mean that we don't stand up against that opposition when the time is needed. But what it means is, even when we have enemies, we love them, we pray for them, and we give ourselves to them in many ways. So the unity of mind means we walk in lockstep together as a community on the mission of God so that we can continue to be a blessing to those around us. Look at the next one, have sympathy. Right? We all know what sympathy is. It's, it's simply having and sharing in the same kind of emotion or feeling that others are having. Or to put it biblically in Romans chapter 12, verse 15, we rejoice with those who rejoice. We mourn with those who mourn. It's entering into the experience of others so that we can walk with them, love them, serve them, rejoice with them if necessary, weep with them if necessary, but we're together. Again, unity of mind leads to sympathy of feeling, and at the end of the day, sympathy is going to be an exercise in self-denial. I would venture to say that the least sympathetic person you know might be the most self-centered person you know. Why? because he can't take himself out of the equation to focus on you or others. No, sympathy is an exercise in self-denial. That is, when we are sympathetic towards others, when we seek to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn, we must think of and act for another person, not ourselves. So to be unified, to have sympathy, he says, brotherly love, which is really maybe more accurately translated brotherly affection for one another. That is, Peter here commends us to have a sort of heartfelt affection for one another. It's both brothers and sisters in Christ, but even our neighbors who are outside of Christ. And this heartfelt affection is to define our service and our relationship with all manner of people. This is radical form of love that every Christian is called to possess. Brotherly love and affection for one another, for God, for our neighbor. He goes on, have a tender heart or a compassionate heart. I would commend to you, again, reading Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly, and just meditate on the compassionate heart of Jesus. You can go back maybe this time last year and we preached a short sermon series on that same book and a particular sermon on the compassion of Christ. But here Peter says to the Christian, you should have a compassionate heart like Jesus. And a compassionate heart is one that takes up the cause of another. It comes alongside. and It takes up the cause of that person and it moves with love towards them in their direction. It is sympathy and brotherly love in action. That's what compassion really is. Sympathy and brotherly love in action for the good of another. When you're tender-hearted, it means you allow people to get close to you and you bring them into your heart and life so that you can faithfully and perseveringly walk alongside with them as you take up their cause and you move in their direction for their good. Have a unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, he says, a humble mind. The humility, of course, is the willingness to do all of these things and to be this kind of person without applause, without the expectation of honor or esteem from others. In fact, humility is the door or the gate through which all the other qualities are going to flow. If you're genuinely, truly humble, then you can be faithfully sympathetic, compassionate, affectionate, and of one mind. It requires humility to be able to do this. I think why he ends that sentence with a humble mind. A humble mind, of course, doesn't thrust itself forward in front of others for all to see. It doesn't make itself the center of attention a humble mind will lead a Christian to serve and love others without hesitation for the simple reward of doing so. Not for any other reason. But because Christ commands it. And then in verse 9, we see the last character of a Christian that is to bless the world around them is a commitment to bless. That is a, a a ready and a willingness commitment to bless even when you're reviled and even when you're treated unjustly. I think Peter here echoes Paul who says in Romans, chapter 12, verse 14, actually, just the very next verse from rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Paul goes on to say then, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. In 1 Corinthians 4, verse 12, he says, when reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. So he's saying as an example of his own life and the other apostles around him that we are to move closer to our enemies even when they treat us unjustly. We bless them. We do not curse them. When slandered, we entreat them. We do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, Peter says, bless. And so to bless simply means to act kindly. It means to move toward someone with good favor for their benefit, for their joy, for their good. It means to be committed to the idea and to the work of the flourishing of that person in Christ. Regardless of their status as Christian or not, we move towards others, especially those who revile us or pay us evil. We move towards them in blessing with kindness for their good, an extremely hard thing to do, but one which we are called to do. Brother says, I just wonder if Christians truly sought to bless others, how different our culture may be. What if Christians sought to bless others in their workplace and they honored their bosses and their employers or they, they celebrated the wins of their fellow workers or mourned with them in their life when they share with one another the things that are going on? What if Christians moved towards one another to bless and not to curse in the arena of politics or our speech online or the school board meeting What if instead of repaying evil for evil and having shouting matches or keyboard fights, we move to bless? We move not to repay evil for evil, not to revile for reviling, but to bless and not to curse. What if you were the kind of neighbor in your community that was a blessing? What if you had the reputation of being a blessing to your community. This commitment still remains even when you're faced with hostility. See, Peter doesn't give us an out here. Just because someone treats us unfairly, we're off the hook to move towards them in blessing, to move towards them in kindness, to seek the welfare and their good. Even when we're faced with hostility, we are called to bless and not to curse. And so that's the way of blessing. We're called to walk in a manner that reflects the gospel and bestows blessing on those around us. But secondly, in verses 10 through 12, we see that there is a gift of blessing as well. See, we're told that we can obtain a blessing there at the end of verse 9 through our own gospel field commitment to blessing others and the way that we conduct ourselves in life. But the question is, what is this blessing itself that we would receive? If we bestow a blessing on our neighbors and those around us, what is the blessing that we receive that Peter then will have in mind, that we obtain a blessing when we do this, when we fulfill and walk in light of our calling to bless? Well, he pulls from Psalm 34 to explain. He says, Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So, what's the blessing that we receive when we move towards others to bless, as is our calling? At the end of the day, it's peace. Blessing is peace. We have a joyful, peaceful life. Filled with all the goodness and the gladness of walking faithfully in light of God's commands and words, we, he says, will see good days. We seek peace and we pursue it, and the Lord opens his ears and his eyes to those who so walk. You receive the blessing of God's kindness and provision of peace. And so, the use of our tongues to bless and not to curse. And our commitment to love our neighbors, right? just a summary of the traits listed above, will produce a peace, a particular kind of peace, in the life of a believer. I think Christians will often find themselves to be the butt of the joke, to be the object of hostilities and even persecution, even in our context, which is largely padded and secure we'll increasingly find ourselves to be at odds with our communities and our culture. But the general teaching of the apostles in the New Testament is that when you seek the good of others, good is the result. Good is the result. Even in the midst of hostility, when we seek the good of others, when we move towards others in blessing, the outcome is blessing. That's sort of the default normative way God has so ordered the world. Our humility, our compassion, our blessing invites the favor of others, generally speaking. And it minimizes the unnecessary hostility that we might incur when we knowingly make enemies out of our neighbor. I want to say that part of the hostility against the church sometimes is our own doing. The things we do and say in the name of Jesus is pretty atrocious and so we, we have to own that as Christians. But there's a lot that we can move forward in blessing that will minimize that sort of ostracism. You'll become eventually perhaps recognized as someone who contributes to the flourishing of society and not simply who just wants to point out all the sins of our president or of name your particular person or institution. Christians who seek to love life, to see good days, as Psalm 34 would put it, must not be overly combative or contentious. I think that's the issue here. But Peter says, this is your situation. You can either fight against it, you can combat it by making these people your enemies, or you can move towards them in blessing. You can pursue Peace. That's what you've been called to do. And so, friends, let us not be overly combative or contentious. We're going to pick our fights, and there are plenty of fights that we should pick. But let us not be first, contentious, and combative with our neighbors if we can move first in love and in blessing. That simply just means, as James would say, be slow to speak, quick to hear, slow to anger. Online, in person, In fact, we see Jesus himself often was silent before his persecutors. So there may be a time for you simply just not to engage. Do not be combative or contentious. If you do this, it will likely erode the dignity and the value that you will begin to see others with. You make the person your enemy, no longer will you pray for them. If you make the person your enemy, no longer will you value them as someone made in the image of God who needs redemption, who garners your compassion. Not only that, but it will cause others to view your own profession of faith with disdain. They'll probably undermine the display of Christ's redemptive work in your life because you're combative and contentious. And the beauty and the value of the gospel is marred because of the unnecessary hostilities we invite on ourselves because we don't pursue peace. Now, I'm not here to tell you which battles you have to pick. There are a few that I can tell you, but there are many more opportunities in your life that you'll have to use Christian discernment and wisdom to determine where do I stand, what do I say, how do I say it. And so the gift of blessing is that when you move towards others, you will receive peace. But look at verse 13. Verse 13. Yes, there is a gift of blessing, but there will also be a cost. See, good days are not promised to any one of us. There is a gift of blessing, but there is also a cost of blessing. So while Peter encourages his readers to seek and even expect peace when they move towards others in blessing and kindness and love, you should not be surprised when even your righteous conduct, even when you work faithfully, doesn't invite the praise of others, but rather invites their scorn. We shouldn't be surprised when you move towards someone who is hostile to you in love and kindness that they only double down on their scorn. Even still, look at verse 14. Peter says, you will be blessed. Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. So the blessing God has for you, peace for your life, is not contingent on whether or not they receive your blessing, kindness, and your love. But rather, you are called to do so, and they may double down, but your blessing remains. God is committed to your good and to your peace. So we shouldn't say peace is the absence of hostility or suffering, but rather faithful walking and right standing with God in God's will. So your commitment to righteousness, to the blessing of others, which is your calling, should be and ought to be the single most attractive, if not puzzling, characteristic that the world will see and take notice of he says that when you move towards others' in righteousness, you might suffer for righteousness' sake, yet you'll still be blessed. But have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense for anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So you're going to be asked, demanded sometimes, to explain yourself why you move towards others in love and kindness, why you're committed to their blessing, even when they are hostile against you, and you have to be prepared to give an answer. They may do so under threat of danger or genuinely inquisitive about what's different about you. The thing that remains true in both of them is that your commitment to righteousness and blessing others despite all of that is the thing that garners their attention. So hostilities, then, should not cause us to slow our rate of blessing. It shouldn't cause us to be hesitant to move towards a particular person or persecutor or co-worker or sister or brother in love. It shouldn't slow our rate of blessing or cause us to stop short of loving others simply because suffering awaits us if we do. Instead, Peter says, press on. Press on as strangers. Press on as foreigners in a strange land. Commit yourself to doing good Not controlled by the fear of man, but by fueled by the hope that is in you. You don't have to fear those. You have hope. And that's what causes you to lean forward into blessing, though there may be a cost. Fourthly, though, then Peter shows us, causes us to consider the model of such blessing. In verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. See, to show us that this is possible, to show us that this is the right move, he doesn't say, this is what I would do. He doesn't say, all the great minds have agreed with me, this is the way to go, this makes the most sense in the long run, you're gonna win more flies with honey than vinegar. No, he doesn't appeal to that sort of logic, he appeals to Christ. Christ did it. Christ sets the standard. Christ is the model and the example that we follow. And we follow him often into suffering, into persecution. So this is possible as he reminds us of the humility and the commitment that Jesus himself possessed as he pursued the very same things, the will of God, the ministry of reconciliation, the preaching, the proclamation of the gospel. But still, we've arrived to a very peculiar and difficult passage of this text, and I am not going to satisfy all of your questions, Josh. So just write them down and ask Jake later. What's going on in verses 19 to 20? Jesus was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. What's happening here? What's going on? Well, uh, Martin Luther he said, I have no idea. And so I don't pretend to have figured it out if Luther hasn't. But I think there's a couple things we can make clear about this text that will help us understand this, the context and the direction that Peter here is moving on. He's aiming to show the power and the victory, the triumph of Christ over his persecutors. Right When Peter says, have no fear of them in verse 14... It says, lean into suffering. Jesus suffered, and he was victorious and vindicated. That's your example. And so he draws on this idea. Really, this is probably one of the ancient creeds or hymns that he's reciting here, that Jesus proclaimed, it says, to the spirits in prison as a means of vindicating his power, his triumph over sin and death and the powers of darkness. This is about Christ's triumph. And so he is our example. God vindicates Christ through his resurrection, his exaltation, and the example he sets for us as Christians is to walk faithfully in light of that because God will vindicate his people too. Christ's death and resurrection is the basis of our own confidence that we can and must pursue righteousness, even if it seems to cost us in the short term. So notice the framework here in verse 14, sorry, verse 18 Christ was put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit. And then in verse 22, has gone into heaven. We see the pattern there of God's faithfulness towards those who suffer for righteousness' sake in the gospel itself. The death, the resurrection, and the exaltation of Jesus frames for us the kind of calling into suffering that we have. God will raise us and vindicate us even if we're put to death. And so what's the meaning of the passage? A couple points of clarification. One, it's not likely that the kind of proclamation here Jesus is speaking is evangelistic. There's a a different word in the Greek for that, for preaching the good news, euangelion. This is different. This is proclamation. This is a heralding of a particular kind of uh, truth. It's a statement. So it's not evangelistic, and so he's not converting anybody in this prison. There is a different word in the Greek for that kind of preaching. This is proclamation. But secondly, notice to whom he's speaking, it's to spirits, that is in the plural, and not to souls. Now, it's something you need to know, and you can fact check me later, that the word spirits in the plural always refers to entities that are not human, unless they have been explicitly referenced. So when you come across the word spirits, typically it is evil spirits or demonic spirits, not human souls. There's a differentiation there. And so this means Jesus is probably not speaking to Old Testament saints. That's a popular interpretation of this, that he's speaking to those who are perhaps waiting in Abraham's bosom or some sort of intermediate state that now gets to have a good news preached to them and a chance to hear the gospel and to pray and, and believe it. No, he's not speaking to Old Testament saints or to even humans, but more than likely, this is a reference to Genesis 6 and the role that fallen angels would play in the time of Noah that led to the corruption of that generation that ultimately incited God to send the flood. And so he's preaching to a particular kind of entity, fallen angels, about their disobedience and he's proclaiming to them His victory on the cross and Jesus' vindication at the hands of God over the powers of sin and darkness. So There's no preaching or conversion of these demons. He's simply saying Christ is victorious. Even still, he hasn't gone down into hell or Hades or Sheol or whatever the interpretation you may believe is, but probably this is metaphorical prison to those who are under the control and authority of God as captives. Remember, Jesus talks about casting out demons in Matthew chapter 12. And he says, you can't first do that unless you bind the strong man, referring to Satan. That's the same language of being bound or imprisoned. Here, he's saying this is about dominion over spiritual forces of darkness. And Jesus has conquered it. And so this is about dominion. It's about sovereignty and victory over all things. And so what Jesus does in proclaiming to the spirits in prison is saying, I have won. Though you may have slain me, God raised me, and my life atones for all those you seek to destroy. It's victory. So this isn't trying to convert lost souls from the Old Testament time. It's not trying to convert even demons to try and change their ways. This is the proclamation of the victory, the triumph, and the dominion of Christ over all things. That's the scope of his dominion, by the way, not just over the world, but over all cosmic beings. That's why Ephesians 3 says the church displays the manifold wisdom of God to the principalities, not just to your state or the world. That's the scope of the glory of God. Okay, we're not out of the woods yet. Then he goes on to talk about baptism saving you. What? What's going on there? Are we Baptists or no? He says, speaking of Noah, he he proclaims To those who formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. And baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. That, by the way, is the clue to understand that this is about dominion. So regarding Noah's family, I think Peter obviously he draws this connection between those who are on the ark, saved by God, and the family of God, that is the church, saved in Christ. And so the waters of the flood, he says, correspond to the waters of baptism in a particular kind of way. And so God saved Noah through water and his family. And so Peter says, corresponding to this, baptism now saves you. That is, we are saved through water, as it were. But we don't want to get ahead of ourselves. The New Testament has been abundantly and explicitly clear over and over again, even Peter himself will say it, that we are saved by Christ alone, by faith alone. Baptism does not save us or put us in right standing before God. It does not justify us. In fact, he says, not as a removal from dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus. So so what does Peter mean? What he says here is that in baptism, we are united to the power of Christ's resurrection. That that resurrection that puts him over all things and under all things are his subjection. No, he are united to him. In our baptism, we are united to Christ, the power of his resurrection. Think of Romans chapter 6. And it's the basis of Christ's death and burial and resurrection that our appeal to God is accepted and results in our salvation. So Peter is saying, when you were baptized, you, you came into this relationship with Christ in which you now share in the exercise of his dominion over all things. The blessing that comes to you, the peace that he uh, he earned for you in your life is now yours. And so really, baptism, both in Peter, we see this in Acts chapter 2 as well, is really shorthand for all of the gospel experience. Faith, justification, belief, baptism. It's about the uniting and converting experience of being made alive together when you were formerly dead. And So zoom all the way out. See the full picture here. Christ's life of righteousness and his suffering for righteousness' sake is to galvanize Christians for our own suffering and our own persecution for righteousness' sake. So we are to be encouraged and empowered by Christ's example of suffering and ultimately his triumph over suffering and have confidence in God's vindication of all those who suffer because of their faith in context. So Peter says he raised him from the dead. Christ is triumphant. He's preaching to the spirits in prison that he has dominion over all of them, and therefore you can be confident that God will vindicate you, that you share in that dominion, that you will receive the blessing of the inheritance that he has secured for you. So it's important to recognize that the blessing is for us. Fifth, and in verses 4 through 6, the last of our text, there is a hope of blessing. So what do we do with this? Well, he says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. So we are to cease from sin as we pursue the will of God, just as Jesus does. Philippians chapter 2, Have this mind among yourself, which is yours also in Christ Jesus, that though he was equal with God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he subjected himself, humbled himself, emptied himself, Right? Obedience to the point of death on a cross. Have the same kind of attitude or mind about you that Jesus, as you flee sin and temptation, and you pursue the will of God. All throughout the Gospels, Jesus says, I've come to do the will of the Father. So you live not for the flesh, as those who would be satisfied with the flesh, the pagans, the Gentiles, they're happy to live in this life of all things fleshly. It's a whole list of vices there in which they participate in and desire for the world, you Christians, to participate in with them. But we're not satisfied with that. But rather, we live for the will of God. And we await the final day of judgment in which we will receive our greatest hope and inheritance. And so the mind of the Christian is to be stayed on God. It's to be stayed on his word. It's to be stayed on his will. When it says, you have suffered, since Christ suffered in the flesh, you arm yourself the same way of thinking so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. You are to live for the will of God. Focus your thoughts and your mind and your life on God and his word so that you can discern his will and do it. That's what it means to walk faithfully. And there is hope in this. Because the hope of the Christian Than is on the gospel of Jesus Christ, on his death, burial, and resurrection, on which our appeal to God for a clean conscience is heard and accepted. Your hope is on his return and on the promise of everlasting life for all those who are united to him by faith. That's the true hope. That's why Psalm 34 is here in Peter's mind. He says, This is the full, joyful life that's promised to you. And Psalm 34 is now yours in Christ if you're united to him by faith. It comes to full fruition. And in verse six, again, a peculiar passage or, or, or verse, but it says, for this is why the gospel was preached to those who are dead, though judged in the flesh the way people are, that they might live in the spirit the way God does. This is, this is a different uh, a picture than what he has just said in verses 18 and 19. Notice the verse right before it, that those who persecute you and revile you because of your Christian faith will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And this is why the gospel is preached to those even who now are dead, that though they were judged in the flesh the way people are, they might res- live in the spirit the way God does. That is, God has vindicated them, and the gospel is a source of their vindication. So in verse 6, the hope of God's vindication is seen in the, in the now present reality for those who were mistreated, maligned, persecuted. And they now enjoy this full spiritual life, everlasting life with God in heaven where Christ is now seated. So the hope of the blessing of the Christian life, both which we bestow, proclaim, and which we receive, is the promise, the hope of blessing, of vindication, and true reward. And so there is a a promise. This is six. The promise of blessing. And really simply it's this that this blessing, this promise can be yours. That's the heart of it. If you're not a Christian this morning, and you've not... Fully put your hope and trust in Christ. If you've not seen him as the treasure that he is, and the place by which you can seek refuge from the flood against hostilities of this world or against God's wrath against your sin, if you haven't turned to him with true affection as your Savior, the promise and the hope of blessing is that it can be yours simply by repenting of your sins and turning to Christ in faith. And you will have this promised inheritance Peter speaks of. It can be yours, friend that you can walk faithfully despite how difficult the Christian life may seem at times, how silly and, and unentertaining it might be, that there is great joy, everlasting joy in life that is yours when you follow Christ, even when he goes and leads you into suffering. Christian, remind yourself that all of this is yours, that you have that hope of blessing commit yourself to the joy and the love and the good of others as Christ has committed himself at pain of his own life. He who embodied all of this beautiful picture of humility, service, blessing, love, did so for your benefit. He laid his own life down and suffered, the Son of God, suffered for sin once and for all, your sin and my sin, that we would be drawn near to God. And that is your blessing, Christian, you have now. So the world will become more and more hostile in some places more than others. And you will find yourself at odds, the butt of a joke or the end of a rifle. The promise of blessing is that no one can take your life from you because it's already in Christ. What did we sing? My life is hid with who? Christ. Can the world take it away? What does Jesus say? Don't fear man who can end your life, but fear God who can both end your life and your soul. What can man do? What suffering can ever separate us from the love of God in Christ? Christian, pursue righteousness' sake. Move towards your neighbors, even your enemies, in love, as Christ moved towards you, his enemy, in love. And the promise and the blessing of that is that he says, You are no longer my servants, but my friends. If you believe the gospel this morning, that promise is yours to hold, to keep, and to believe. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for that promise. At times, Lord, my heart doesn't fully believe it. It doesn't even fully understand it. But God, I, I, I pray that you would so enrich our lives that we would live out of that promise as Christians and as a church to move towards our community, our neighbors, our coworkers, our family, our friends who are not believers, even those who would ridicule us and repay us with evil, that we would move towards them in love, kindness, and with blessing, that we might be a blessing to the world, but also that we would follow in the footsteps of Christ and receive the blessing of an eternal inheritance that awaits us. We trust that God vindicates the innocent, as says he has risen Christ from the dead, so too will he vindicate all those who are mistreated and, mis- and maligned and they will give an answer in Christ. But Lord, give us boldness and conviction to lean into blessing as we serve and love others, even if it may cost us. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the victory of Jesus. We thank you for his suffering which secured our own victory in him and for the power of his resurrection which stands as a sign for us that you will always be faithful to your people. We love you, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Recent sermons are released under a Creative Commons non-commercial, no derivative, 3.0 license. If you'd like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com. Whatever my God ordains is right, His hold.